This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. I am extremely excited to be here today with John Coffey, the uh, uh, Adolfo A. Burrell Professor of Law and Director of the Center on Corporate Governance at Columbia Law School. He's an expert in corporations, securities regulation, white-collar crime, complex litigation, and everything involving the Securities Exchange Commission. And of course, he knows a lot about activist investing, our favorite subject. Welcome, Professor Coffey. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here with you, Ron. So, Professor Coffey, you co-authored a paper on activist hedge funds suggesting that these insurgent managers drive significant cutbacks in long-term investments, and they uh, also have a big impact in, in uh, driving companies to cut R&D at targeted firms. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that paper. Well, that paper, written four or five years ago with no, Darius Polia, uh, did find very significant reductions in research and development by companies that were engaged by a hedge fund, particularly if the hedge fund got one or two directors on the board. Now, that paper was initially controversial, but this point is now universally accepted. Both sides in the debate agree that there are massive decreases in research and development once the activists engage a particular target company. The proponents of activism concede the reduction, but they now argue that the reduced uh, investment is still more profitable investment. They have data involving patent citations and other kinds of debatable data uh, that suggests to them that even though you've cut back your investment by a large percentage, the remaining investment is much more profitable, much more efficient based on the number of patent citations. Now, this is a very debatable and complex debate. Uh, I would say two points. First, uh, first, There is a public and positive externality in increasing research and development. Not only does it benefit the company that does that increased research and development, but it benefits other companies in the same industry. Think about whoever invents penicillin 100 years ago or whatever. That invention not only made profits for that company, but it opened up a whole new world of antibiotic drugs that made all pharmaceutical companies wealthy. And to that extent, when we cut back on research and development, there is a negative externality. All companies are going to get less research that triggers new developments by them as well. We all learn from new knowledge. That's point one. Point two Uh, We have to distinguish between just having a patent and having a very original patent. There is a Harvard economic professor, Professor Hirschleifer, who has done a long study that concluded that patent originality requires you have a very large patent budget, that you have to do lots of unrelated research and suddenly you find connections between that unrelated research. And so when you cut back on research and development, you're probably greatly cutting back on the prospect of the most original patents. So you may have some short-term profit from cutting back because the patents you keep are typically quite efficient, produce a return, but you may lose out on the long-run possibility of the bonanza discovery, the truly original patent. And that's why this debate is continuing and I think is one of the more important debates surrounding activism. So let me see if I uh, get this uh, correct. I'm wondering if you also feel that activist investors have a broader impact on the vast majority of corporations, you know, ones that are not currently targeted by an activist. uh, And uh, do you believe that many companies may be cutting back on R&D, hiking their stock buyback plans, 
um, and doing all kinds of other things because they worry an activist could target them next. Well, my answer to that is absolutely. You're totally correct because there's the general deterrent effect. You're not only influencing the company you target and engage, but companies like them know that they could be next. All CEOs are concerned about their employment, and activists who get two or three directors on the board tend to produce a high turnover in CEOs. You know, if those two activists go on the board, you've got a pretty much a double chance of being out of office within one or two years. Yes. So you try to take whatever steps will make you unattractive and not a target for the activists. And that may mean that maybe not as much, but to some extent, you'll cut back on research and development too, because a high research and development budget may be a red flag that attracts activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm wondering, uh, just in a related feature, a lot of activists try to pressure companies to be sold or to spin off a division or divest a division. And- yes, well, they generally want you to turn research and development into stock buybacks. I mean, the activist makes money either from an increase in the stock price or from buybacks and dividends. And we do tend to see reduction. Most activists only hold their shares for one or two years. And there is some news research that suggests that after two years, the activist goes away and the company goes back to its prior pattern of higher investment in research and development. So this might be a two-year interruption, but for the CEO, it's a two-year interruption that he's got to tolerate or risk his job. Let me ask about a related trend. Uh, Carl Icahn submitted a sex, what's known as a Section 220 request in Delaware for the books and records at Occidental Petroleum. Uh, this is a situation where Occidental reached a deal to buy Anadarko Petroleum, and uh, we have a rival bidder, Chevron, who had wanted to buy it. Icahn is seeking books and records uh, and trying to decide whether he wants to launch uh, what's known as a special shareholder meeting, which presumably would be to nominate directors in an effort to thwart this deal. He thinks that uh, Occidental is paying far too much to buy Anadarko. And um, um, I guess my question is that, you know, this seems to be part of a broader trend of U.S. activists uh, trying to block blockbuster deals. Uh, We saw Icon try to do this at Express Scripts uh, Cigna unsuccessfully, spent a couple of weeks on that campaign in total. Uh, Starboard uh, tried to do it more aggressively, I believe, at uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. Celgene, third point, is trying to do this right now at uh, Centene Wellcare, that uh, merger, 15 billion merger. So I guess I'm beginning to wonder whether this these activist campaigns uh, to try to block these blockbuster mergers are more about uh, kind of trying to improve alpha for the uh, uh, for the activists through you know shaking up the share prices of these these companies and not so much about uh, trying to actually block the deal. I guess two two recent examples: uh, the activists didn't succeed, but a lot of people speculated that the activists made a lot of money doing that. What do you think? You could be right. I don't know anything about Mr. Icon's motivation. I would say that non-activists, very diversified investors like T. Rowe Price, have raised the same objection and have indicated they want to vote against the deal. It's always been the case in the American merger and acquisition world that bidders tend to pay too much. This could be extreme case. Although I think this was a make-or-break deal for the bidder. They saw this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get control of the Permian Basin, or at least be the largest player in the Permian Basin, which appears to be a particularly profitable oil field right now. 
Um, so is this uh, an opportunistic act that is just trying to profit him, or is this something that all the shareholders of the bidder may share a concern that the bidder is overpaying? It's at least clear that there are others who have this concern, and I think the company has uh, gone out of its way to try to avoid making this solely a matter of a shareholder vote. Yeah, no. What's interesting is that the uh, there was a deal struck with uh, Warren Buffett uh, that basically uh, reduced. The- that was the point of it. It reduced. This is the need for a shareholder vote. Yeah, it, it, right. It, exactly. So you don't need a shoulder vote, which is one thing that T. Rowe Price, Occidental doesn't need a shoulder vote. One thing that yeah. T. Rowe Price has expressed a concern about, they deserve a vote on this. Obviously, they would want to vote no on it, I'd imagine. Um, yes. Well, uh, Carl Icahn has made a 220 demand, a Section 220 demand. Right. The purpose of getting books and records is often to fuel other kinds of litigation, either a derivative suit or possibly a suit in federal court under 10b-5. Uh, I don't know that that will happen, but it's usually a pre- to arm him with what he can get and the way of discovery without having to file the direct litigation. Is the goal that he's trying to find some evidence that the board of Occidental Petroleum was aware that they were paying too much so that Icon can then uh, say, you know, look at this email or this uh, memo, aha, uh, uh, this, you know, that can use it as a, as a source for his, uh, his next lawsuit? You hope, I mean, you hope you can find the smoking gun. That's right. the purpose of a 220 demand. Okay, very quickly, we don't have a lot of time. I wanted to go into some uh, Washington-related policy matters involving activists. So you've, uh, you know, there's there's these issues about R&D and stock buybacks. If you wanted to kind of, um, if the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, decided it wanted to kind of hamper the activists or take some steps that would, uh, make it more difficult for activists. One thing that I know that Wachta Lipton has long been advocating is reduce the window for disclosing uh, for uh, for when you have to disclose across the 5% stake. I know a lot of activists never cross the 5% stake, but a lot do, and they have 10 days to uh, when they cross it and having to disclose it. Would the shorter window help? Somewhat. That is, reducing 10 days to, say, the British rule of two days reflects the fact that the Williams Act was passed long ago when it took that amount of time for mail to cross the country. Today, everything is done by email, and you could file within a matter of hours, or you could have the British rule in two days. I think what the SEC is really looking at, however, is not shortening the Windows Act filing period, but trying to more regulate more closely the proxy advisor, the ISSs of this world, yeah. and they have proposed rules that they have not yet announced, but they are possibly going to chill or slow the ability of proxy advisors to make recommendations to shareholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that it's on the rec flex agenda of the SEC, which is kind yes. of... Yes, which it means it's going to be addressed within one year. So uh, what do you think of that idea? I mean, do proxy advisors have too much influence? Well, uh, should they be uh, in a bit? I think proxy advisors have some conflicts, and conflicts should be disclosed more than they are today, but I don't want to censor what they can say. One version of these proposed rules would say that you can't make recommendations to shareholders till you first discuss them with the company and get the company's response. That's going to be a long, drawn-out negotiation, possibly followed by litigation, and I'm not sure censorship is a good idea in this field. Especially in a short proxy season, it seems like it would be a big bottleneck in the ability of these uh, ISS Glass Lewis to produce their reports. 
Well, I think that's a, you raised a good concern. We have to see what the rule says, but the focus may be on this requiring the company to negotiate and get its comments approved or at least vetted by the target company. And that's probably not what the target company should be entitled to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see what this proposal uh, expected in the next year will say at the SEC. But for now, I really appreciate you, Professor Coffey, taking a little time to speak with the, the Deals Activist Today podcast. Always fun, Ron. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Professor Coffey. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.